Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Lainey Mays. And Essie Ramirez. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, everyone. It's Lainey. Welcome back to the Library Love Fest podcast. Today, we are very overjoyed to welcome a returning editor to our Editors Unedited episode, Emily Griffin, Executive Editor at Harper. Hi, Emily. Hi, Lainey. Thanks for joining us. You have a special author, so I'm going to hand it over to you. Great. Um, this is Emily Griffin. Um, I am here with the beloved best-selling novelist, Jillian Medoff, uh, whose fifth novel, When We Were Bright and Beautiful, goes on sale on August 2nd of this year. Um, I've been lucky enough to work with Jillian for, let's see, I think 11 or 12 years now um, at different houses, and I am in love with all of her books, but I think this one is really the most special. Um, and Jillian, thank you so much for joining us today. And let me tell the audience a little bit about you, if you don't mind. <laughs> Jillian is the author of the national bestseller, I Couldn't Love You More, as well as the novels This Could Hurt, Good Girls Gone Bad, and Hunger Point. A former fellow at McDowell, Blue Mountain Center, VCCA, and Fundacion Valparaiso, she has an MFA from NYU. In addition to writing fiction, Jillian has a long career in management consulting and is currently a senior consultant at the Siegel Group. And she lives in Montclair, New Jersey and works in New York City. That's right. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. This is the first well, time I'll really be talking about the book. So it's, absolutely. it's very exciting. Well, I'm really glad that we're getting to do it on Lainey's podcast, which, um, you know, and having such a fan of the book in Lainey, I know she's already been um, talking it up uh, like mad to librarians, and um, I'm very glad that the book has resonated uh, with her. So as I mentioned in the brief intro, Jillian, uh, When We Were Bright and Beautiful is your fifth novel. Um, it is a family drama and a courtroom drama, and it's centered around a young woman whose younger brother is accused of rape. Uh, he is a student at Princeton and um, she just feels like there's no way he could be guilty and she's gotta stand by him. And um, as she sort of dives deeper into the family dynamics, the story shifts and changes a lot. Um, I found it completely compelling. Even though you have written novels that have really um, kind of dived in to these into characters. This is your first one in a while that probably touches on um, an issue in a way, um, in, in, a, in a kind of overt way. And I wondered why now? Well, that's a very good question. And I think for one of the things that happens when you're a career novelist, as I think of myself, even though I have a normal person's job, <laughs> I, I I want to make the books that I write as interesting for me 
as they are for the reader because at this point in my in my career you know you, you reach a point i think where you understand that you're going to be living with these people for a very long period of time for me an average book takes 4 years and my last one took 7 mm -hmm. and um so i became very interested in the concept of writing about wealth. And originally the, the book was looking at um, an upstairs downstairs situation in a luxury building. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, you know, that could be compelling in, in its own way, but it didn't have enough propulsive movement to move the book forward in a like, and then, and then, and then mm -hmm. turning the pages way. So I, 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 to be honest, the original crime was not sexual assault. The original crime mm -hmm. was kidnapping. And it, it was looking at this, this um, family from the perspective of a, 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 an heiress, her child is kidnapped. And, I, and it just wasn't, it didn't hold the same kind of, um, interest for me as a sexual assault, even though, honestly, the book is, is actually working on two levels. So you have the story proper about the um, Cassie, who is the 23-year-old narrator, her younger brother, Billy, is accused of sexually assaulting his former girlfriend. So that's the through line of the entire novel. But there's mm -hmm. also another story going on. And that was really the story. It's Cassie's, I'd say, coming of age or how, however you want to depict it. I was far more interested in that story. And so mm -hmm. even from the beginning, I wanted to tell that story with either the kidnapping or the sexual assault as an overlay. And so I didn't go into this book writing about sexual assault, like, oh, I want to explore this image. It came like organically from writing about this family. And I actually worked on the book for a couple of years trying to avoid the whole courtroom drama. Like yeah. my goal was to not do it because it seemed so hard and so um, unwieldy. So I started setting the book like 20 years in, in the future. And my beta readers were like, wait, this feels so distant. What, what? And I'm like, you don't understand. They're like, just write it as it's happening. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. I cannot write a, a trial. And slowly my resistance eroded. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to write this trial. And that became its own experience, which was really fascinating. And, and I loved it. And I will never, ever do it again. <laughs> Actually, Jillian, you so um, kindly provided me with a segue into my next question, truly, um, uh, which was about research, the research that you did and about um, what it's like to write a courtroom drama when you are not a lawyer. Uh, so many practitioners of the genre I believe our lawyers or law professors themselves. Um, and I couldn't believe how many things you got right. Um, and at one point, I know during the editorial process, 
I asked you sort of where you had taken liberties and the only legal liberty was a very small thing. Um, but I'm curious about your legal research and also about your research. Um, I assume you are not um, from a multimillionaire, billionaire family. Um, sorry, I should assume that, but yeah. I don't, I do not think this is based on your own Upper East Side childhood in a landmark building. Um, so what sort of research did you feel like you had to do into the lives of the rich and famous and, or semi-famous and uh, what kind of legal and courtroom research did you have to do? Well, I think for me, one of the facets of, of my books is to create this entire universe that mm -hmm. doesn't exist in real life, but exists in the world of the book. And um, I have always been fascinated by wealthy people in the same way that I'm fascinated by fraternities or, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, like, or prisons. I mean, prisons mm -hmm. really like knock me out because they're closed societies or, or universes that mm -hmm only a few people have access to. And the thankfully, Mr. Google has gotten us a lot of bird's eye views into um, these places that we ne would never would have necessarily gone before, but you can actually, as far as the, the courtroom, you can actually access um, courtroom transcripts. Oh, and wow. I know. I know. And I also um, have a sister who is a litigator and yeah. she she walked me through a lot of things. But what, I just have changed a lot in the last 25 years of, of writing books where I am just not afraid of picking up the phone and saying, hi, I'm I'm a novelist I'm doing some research for a book. Will you talk to me? And Mm -hmm. Very often they'll say no, but occasionally you'll get someone who just loves to talk. And um, I, I got a lot of information that way. And it's just like, well, what, you know, I mean, things as rudimentary as what color are the jumpsuits? You know, like right. I wanted to make it as, as genuine and authentic as possible. So in addition to talking to people, literally, like seeing some guy pull out a law book on the subway, I'd be like, oh, hey, do you mind if I ask you a question? But um, I also went down to Trenton and sat in the courthouse, which is open to the public, and um, sat in on some hearings. And so I got to see the color of the jumpsuits and where the people come in from left or right. I mean, I, I would... I get really in the weeds. So um, mm -hmm. I also had to like back up a little bit. But then when I had everything in, in the universe where I feel like, okay, I can work here in this place. And I don't mean physically, I mean <clears throat> like it, on paper, I, I understand where I am enough to fake it. I had my sister walk me through what might happen. And then I, um, I, just, I made a lot of it up but I also verified with um, transcripts and you can, you can Google how, like what objections are permissible and what are not. You can, honestly, it is like by studying the internet, you can get a law degree. And now I honestly, I feel, I feel qualified to represent either of you 
should you be accused of some sort of felony? Thank I mean, you, Jillian. We'll call sure. you. And then as far as researching about the lifestyles of the rich and the famous, all you have to do is go on Instagram. I mean, mm-hmm. between the outfits and the shoes and it's um, it's all there. It's all there for the taking. It's just a matter of being methodical. And I think that is another aspect of my of my books that uh, people don't readers don't necessarily realize that for every detail you put in, you wrote 150 details that you cut out. Right, right. Well, Jillian, that that's also interesting because it it brings to mind not that this is a major point in the book, but I think it's a telling detail that Cassie and her siblings are not allowed to be on social media, that they are so wealthy and their family is so prominent that that is just really it's banned from for them and it's a rule that they're that none of them break even as the they're pushing other boundaries and other limits the idea of the privacy that they have at the same time as the public eye is there is is really fascinating and i also think that the kind of original dna of the upstairs downstairs book that you uh were originally writing is still there in that Anton and Joey, who are um, doormen in the building, are important characters. They have access to a lot of information about the family and vice versa. Um, You know, it's just, it's a really fascinating um, kind of portrayal of this building, um, just as much as of um, the family. And because, um, and I don't think this is giving anything away because it happens early on, because Billy is on house arrest, um, or sorry, Billy is released on bail, but he's um, not allowed to leave a New York City um, or a certain kind of mileage um, around New York City. Um, so much of the action of the book really takes place between the courtroom and their home. They can't jet off to go somewhere. They can't travel. This is a family who has traveled all around the world, has multiple homes, and all of a sudden they are sort of grounded um, by this trial, which also (laughs) calls to mind what many people faced um, for completely different reasons the past couple of years with COVID, um, you know, lockdown with the families, in some cases, a family that they hadn't spent a lot of recent time with. Um, and I think the sort of um, powder keg that you create there um, leads to some really dramatic moments. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. I I just have to correct you on one oh, yes. detail, which is there's no bail in Jersey, which oh, is something that right. I found I'm out sorry. is an aspect of prison reform. So I was like, oh my God, I have to rewrite this like a hundred pages now because there's no bail, mm-hmm. right? So I had to like rethink mm-hmm. everything. One of the one of the things that I had to think about when constructing this universe was how to make it realistic, but also interesting. So right. I wanted him to be in um, a university like I, I, I love the, the New York life in the sense of writing about it, but he, and Billy had to be in school that was close enough that all of these things that you're talking about, where he would be at, you know, on house arrest and everything. Mm-hmm. So all the pieces had to, to fit together and it became like a puzzle worth that I was solving. Um, 
by having him in Princeton and then having Cassie at Yale and having the family house on the Upper East Side. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they couldn't even go to the Hamptons, really. I mean, because he, he can't travel that far. I actually had originally had a question about how you sort of focused on Cassie as the main character, how you identified uh, Cassie, this 23, 24-year-old uh, young woman, graduate student um, and daughter of this family, um, how she became the protagonist and the narrator. But it sounds like in talking to you about the origin of the book, like she was always going to be the protagonist and the narrator, um, no matter what part of her life you ended up um, depicting. Um, but I'm curious, which of the other characters uh, was really interesting to write, um, which was difficult? I imagine Billy, who is the accused, uh, was probably difficult. Um, but who, you know, was there anyone that you really um, got right away as a character? Was there anyone it took you longer to kind of discover? Yeah, I think because this book is sort of a fractured narrative where you're seeing um, uh, you're, Cassie's telling you a story that mm -hmm. um, you know she she she's an an unreliable narrator. So the glimpses that you're getting of her family are are like you know slivers, but right. So it's not really until the end of the book that everyone come, is fully fleshed out in the real true way they are. But one of my favorite characters of all time, of all that I've ever written, what is um, Di Fiore, the, the mm -hmm. lawyer. He was, he was really, really interesting to, to write about. And, and because he's so, he's so smart. And, and Cassie is very smart too. But, you know, when you are a lawyer at that level of, um, of trial, it's, he's just unbelievably got a lot going on that, that I didn't even realize he had going on until I got to truly deep, you know, do a deep dive into his character. And I think the same is true of Nate, who he was difficult to write because he is sort of a, on the surface, he's very, um, you know, he seems like a beach bum and all that, but he's actually multifaceted. And it's like, how do you write a character who is very smart, but who has, you know, like, how do you write a character without making him look like a, a frat bro? even though he's really not. And his, right. so one of the things that, that I, I was really kind of playing with was the idea that these two brothers were in some ways interchangeable. Like at the beginning, Nate comes off a little bit more of a fraternity wolfish kind of guy than his brother. And I, I, I was seeing, well, what are they, you know, seeing people in different circumstances and in different tensions, how they both react and how they, they their characters are revealed, it, given where they are in um, the timeline of the book. But I always had Cassie as the narrator. And um, so I, 
there was a point where, as I said, she narrated the story 20 years later because I, I, oh my God, I had to avoid that trial. But <laughs> she, to me, she was the most um, interesting because she had there, I don't want to reveal anything about the story, but she has um, the most at stake in some ways. I mean, right. even though um, all of the Quins, they're a very tight-knit family and they have a lot of, um, you know, they have a lot of history with each other. So so I, I found Cassie from the start to be the most compelling because while I don't come from a millionaire, multimillionaire family, um, I know you were very curious about that. I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, she does. And, and she's relating what it feels like to be burdened by the expectations of this family. And so she is doing her best to stand on her own two feet and breaking away has its own consequences and what that means for her emotionally and um, you know, physically where she's gonna live and what that means for the family and letting her go. Absolutely. But she is on the precipice of a whole different life. Like she's really trying to break away from the family. And at the same time, I mean, because the whole book opens where she's at school and she's, you know, saying that the, the yoke of money is so, it, it, on one hand, and that to me was also compelling. Like what, what is it like from, from a very wealthy point of view someone who's had everything and who always knows that they have a safety net under them. What happens when that becomes too, um, too much of a, of a noose? You know, how do you try to break away and what do you, what are you giving up? Um, Jillian, has there been anything that has surprised you so far in the reactions to the book, in the reads um, the feedback that you're getting, um, wonderful feedback from librarians, from booksellers, from other authors, from um, in-house sales reps. Um, I could go on and on about the praise um, that we have in the front of the ARE um, that's just um, people raving. Is there any um, reads that have sort of surprised you um, or revealed something about the book to you that you didn't know yourself? Well, I have to say that it is all very surprising. Because, you know, until you put a book in the world, it's like having a conversation. And so you never really know what's going to come back. So I have, I have been so shocked, really, by the amount of people who are willing to explore this family. I mean, I truly thought that there was going to be a lot of um, dissent about not wanting to read about wealthy people and and this topic, which has been covered a lot in, from a lot of different, very, very talented writers in a lot of different ways. So I've been really gratified that there, that a lot, that many readers have not only um, said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to read this and and realize that there's a lot more going on below the surface. That was, that's, it's been so gratifying to me. Jillian, just one more question. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to say about a library or librarian uh, that has been influential in your life? Um, 
either as a kid or an adult? Yes, I do. I um, don't know if you know this because it's I, it was in my bios from years ago, but it's not now. And Lainey, you probably don't know this, that I moved like 17 times when I was a kid. And um, so that's seven elementary schools, two junior highs and two high schools, plus two colleges. Um, and growing up, I was always new. So the library was a refuge. And I would go in and take all these books out. And it was just a place of peace because I didn't have one. Um, everything was always new and moving. And I love the library. I go every week now still. And it's, a, it's, um, it's just a tremendous place for the community. And, but mostly for someone like me who just could get lost in books, it's, uh, it's my favorite place in the world. Thank you. I'm gonna jump in and ask if you have a library you wanna shout out, the one you go to every week. Uh, yes, I spend most of my time at the Montclair Public Library. Great, uh, thank you librarians and anyone else who's tuning in. Um, I hope you get a chance to pick up Jillian Medoff's amazing, amazing fifth novel, When We Were Bright and Beautiful, on sale August 2nd, and I hope you share our excitement. It's really something special. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.